Welcome to the Next Level Human Podcast. As a human, you have a job to do. In fact, you have four jobs. To earn and manage money, to attain and maintain health and fitness, to build and sustain personal relationships, to find meaning and make a difference. None of these jobs are taught in school. And that is what this podcast is designed to do. To educate us all on living our most fulfilled lives through the mastery of these four jobs. I'm your host, Dr. Jade Tita, and I believe we are here living this life for three reasons and three reasons only. To learn, to teach, and to love. In this podcast, I will be learning, teaching, and loving right along with you. I'm grateful to have your company. Here's to our next level. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to this week's episode of the Next Level Human podcast. And this week, uh, we're still doing health and fitness. That job is always an important one. It's the one I spend most of my time with. And we're going deep dive into different metabolic topics with one of my favorite people in the industry. This is Rob Wolf. He is a former research biochemist and a two times New York Times Wall Street Journal bestselling author. He wrote the book, The Paleo Solution. He also wrote the book, Wired to Eat. And he's got a new book out with his uh, co-author, Diana Rogers. They recently released a book called The Sacred Cow, which really goes into sort of sustainable agriculture, why that is so good for the planet. And it's uh, something that I have been educating myself on. And Rob is sort of always at the forefront of some of the most interesting conversations in our industry. He also happens to be one of these scientific agnostic type minds that is constantly evolving as the data evolves. This is one of the reasons I like him. He actually is someone who is very steeped in science. Uh, science. He um, actually, a lot of people don't know this, but he used to uh, be a review editor for the Journal of Nutrition and Metabolism. And so that says a little bit about uh, his uh, well-versed nature in science uh, and the scientific process. Anyway, without further ado, let's just get into the conversation. We talked about a lot of stuff as well as his involvement with one of my new sponsors, Element, the electrolyte drink. So I was excited to get some of that background from him. But we go all over the place, cover lots of interesting topics in this discussion. I know that you'll enjoy it. And let's get on to the show. All right, everybody. I have someone who I have been um, an admirer of for some time, um, you know, kind of silently. And we were just talking before we came on live that we've never actually formally met. I think it's the first time we met, but I've read all of his books. I've been a fan of his. Rob Wolf, welcome to the Next Level Human podcast. I'm excited to have you, my friend. Hey, huge honor to be here. And like we said before recording, I would have swore that we had hung out at some point, but maybe yeah. not. Maybe I'm, I'm uh, having some sort of lost 72 hours alien abduction thing or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it does speak to the fact that you and I have been doing this for a while, right? A so we've both time. been in yeah. this for a while. And one of the things I love about you and, and I'm excited about having you here is, you know, and I don't know how you feel about this, Rob, but I'd love to get your take on it. But in this industry, we have a lot of wonderful people and a lot of talking. And one of the things that happens with that is that all these opinions can sometimes get um, confused and people don't know which way to go. You have always been, for me, one of the most reasoned, rational, more agnostic types in the industry who always shows up with a very reasoned, rational approach. And I think it's because you have you know, such a background in science and that agnostic scientific mind usually makes people pretty reasoned and rational. But that's one of the things I've always loved about you. And it's one of the things that I love to talk about on the Next Level Human podcast. Even though I'm a naturopathic physician by training, I, I go, there's a ton of stuff on the naturopathic side that I don't love because it's not very evidence-based. And there's a lot of stuff mm-hmm. on the conventional side I don't love because it's not necessarily evidence-based. And I try to have that agnostic mind. You seem to be a guy who has always shown up for us and the community in a way that is reasoned and rational and able to sort of go in a different direction and have nuanced conversations. 
And so I just want to say thank you for that, because it's been a really nice thing to have someone like you who's been sort of holding a standard. Um, oh, well, so thank you. And, you know, I'll maybe throw a, a possible insight on that. We just moved to um, Kalispell, Montana, and uh, uh, our jujitsu coach, Travis Davison, he built this gym 14 years ago. He started it as a purple belt. He's now like a, a third degree black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And my wife and I were commenting that he's he's just really a phenomenal coach. Like a, a, there's just a, a presence to him and everything. And I, to the degree that I think that I've got a little bit of a agnostic flair or meet people where they are, I think a lot of it was running a gym and then running kind of a clinical practice and interacting with people and really needing to actually get results. You know, um, I certainly had a period of my career where there was a one size fits all approach and then it started failing people. And I, I broke some people with, uh, you know, using a, a tool that wasn't appropriate to that, to them. And I think that over the course of time, if, if people really are running a robust kind of like clinical interface where they're really interacting with a lot of people and legitimately trying to help them that it, it just forces a certain amount of, uh, circumspection around like, okay, we might think we know some stuff, but maybe we don't know quite as much as what we think we do, you know? So thank you. I really appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's funny. I mean, I know my first book um, and then I can see in your first book, Paleo Solution, I could see going to Wired to Eat, you know, um, was I saw that difference there. And same thing happened yeah. to me in sort of my first work. Having you on the show, we can go in so many different directions because you just have a wide knowledge of lots of different things. I do want to start with something that I've been crazy excited about, and this is something that I know you're involved in, and this is the product element. And so I want to start here and get some of your insights uh, here. So for those of you who don't know, element is what I would describe one of these electrolyte powder beverages. It's kind of like um, Gatorade on steroids without any of the nonsense from right. my perspective. And it's one of the things that I would love to get your insight on, because I think this is something it is just not something that most people understand. When we think about hydration, I think you and I have probably heard over and over again in this field that most people are like, oh, you got to drink this amount of water and you have to do this and that. And they don't really understand hydration in a sense that hydration is this sort of combination of water and electrolytes and being able to right. get this into the system. So I was wondering if you wouldn't mind beginning to educate us on this sort of topic and why you've uh, wanted to get involved with Element and put your sort of brain power behind it. Sure, sure. And uh, remind me to tell the story about Gatorade at, at the end of this. Like if okay. I forget, just uh, we'll try to remember to, to kind of tag that in. But uh, this is maybe a good uh, illustration of begin beginner's mind. Like having a beginner's mind is, is really valuable for this stuff. Uh, I was trained as a biochemist. I, I'm fairly good at that. I know metabolism pretty well. You know, I can do the little flow charts of the Krebs cycle and, all, you, you know, uh, uh, pentose phosphate pathway and how they all feed back on themselves. Like, I'm reasonably good at that stuff. I liked it. And so I developed some aptitude with it. And I've always felt best eating kind of a low-carb diet, or at least over the last 22 years, which is how long I've been tinkering with this. And I've tried little forays doing other things, but just for, I don't know if it's genetics, epigenetics, a combo of things like uh, bad luck, losing a bet, what have you. But I, I just, I tend to do pretty well on kind of a periketogenic uh, way of eating. But I had always struggled to do anything other than like kind of cardio or or uh, powerlifting type stuff. It, once I got into any type of glycolytic type activity, CrossFit or Jiu-Jitsu or something like that, I really struggled. Like I really didn't have a low gear and it shouldn't be surprising when you think about a ketogenic diet where you're, you're not really uh, ingesting a ton of carbohydrates. So the glycogen stores may be a little bit suboptimal and it, it you know, all that type of stuff. But I had bounced back and forth trying to figure out this way of like putting in pre or peri workout carbs and then um, getting a little bit of a performance boost. But then I would kind of get back on the carb rollers, you know, roller coaster after that. And I met a couple of guys, uh, Tyler Cartwright and Luis Villasenor. They're the founders of this online platform called Keto Gains. And they have a couple of hundred thousand people, mainly women, 35 to 60 years old, who are following like a classic five by five strength training program, an appropriate uh, protein, 
low carb diet, like it's called keto gains, but they're not focused so much on the keto side, just kind of like carbohydrate control, adequate protein, really getting at appetite control from a, a low carb whole food diet. And man, the results that Tyler and Luis get with their, their clients is just jaw dropping. Like it's really amazing. And so I started kind of, uh, creeping these guys and hanging out with them. And, and, uh, one day asked them, Hey, you know, you guys seem to have pretty good performance and everything you're doing. Can you look at what I'm doing and just give me some feedback on this? And they're like, absolutely. You know, so I detailed what I was up to and they looked at everything and they were like, well, where's your sodium intake? And I was like, Oh, I salt my food. And you could kind of see this look on their eyes. They're like, Oh, we got a live one on the line, you know? And, and, uh, cause they had probably heard this by this point, like a, a 10,000 times, you know, and they're like, Hey, we really think you probably need more electrolytes in general, but sodium in particular. And at this point I didn't have good beginner's mind. I was kind of like, Oh, I'm a biochemist. I know this stuff. You know, I, I've got this buttoned up. I'm not afraid of sodium, you know? And so I didn't listen to their advice, which is what a lot of people do when they're, they're, uh, interacting with, um, top of the food chain, world-class coaches, you know, of course you, you, you ignore their initial advice. And I went probably a year of still hanging out with these guys and bitching and moaning about kind of, Oh man, what was me when I do jujitsu? I kind of mo motor long, but it's not that great. And I have these problems. And then one day they were like, no man, really like weigh and measure all your food, put it into like a chronometer app that tells you the protein, carbs, fat, but also gives you like calcium, magnesium, phosphorus, like it gives a very detailed analysis of everything that you have, including the electrolytes and micronutrients. They said, you should be getting at least five grams of sodium a day and maybe double that potentially. And I was less than half of that because if you're not eating a highly processed diet, then it, it's actually pretty challenging to get a a, a significant amount of sodium in, in your diet. Um, and this is one of the problems that I, I think that we're facing at large with the way that we look at sodium. Um, people eat a highly refined diet. We know that that's problematic. It's bad for cardiovascular disease. It increases uh, diabetes uh, risk potential, definitely feeds into hypertension, which is, I think, a lot of the concern around sodium intake. But it misses the fact that is it the sodium or is it the processed food or is it the fact that the sodium makes the processed food taste better so you eat even more of it, you know, which is is kind of the, the whole premise of my second book, Wired to Eat. But um, damn, if these guys weren't spot on, like I, I fixed my sodium intake and I was like, guys, everything changed. Like I have this low gear. My sleep is better. My heart rate at, at any given work, you know, output dropped like five to 10 beats per minute. And they're like, yep. That's the way it's supposed to work. And if somebody is put on a medically supervised ketogenic diet and they have a knowledgeable dietitian putting that, that program together by hook or by crook, the individual absolutely get a certain amount of magnesium, certain amount of potassium, but they will really focus on the sodium because in a low insulin environment, our body tends to shed sodium very, very easily and shed water with it. And this can create this whole downward spiral where you start shedding potassium and you can end up with cardiac arrhythmias and disordered sleep and things that look like adrenal fatigue and thyroid dysregulation, all these things that we kind of attribute to low carb diets. And I was like, I asked these guys, you know, are like 95% of the problems that we hang on low carb diets probably due to low sodium. And they're like, yeah, you know, probably because you don't really see these problems in a medically supervised ketogenic diet or low carb diet setting, or even, um, medically supervised fasting. But these folks always make sure to get the electrolytes on point. And when you think about it, uh, Every nerve impulse muscle contraction is driven by sodium potassium pumps. Like literally that is kind of the, the currency of life are these sodium potassium pumps. And I mean, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I can't, other than maybe pH, I don't know that there's anything as tightly regulated as like electrolyte status. So pH is maybe like the most tightly regulated, like the body will, will, really spin out catastrophically if the pH goes too high or too low and it's really vigorously maintained, but like blood sugar levels can be orders of magnitude different and it may be good or bad, but it's not going to kill you outright. But if you change electrolyte status, like that sodium potassium level or pH, 
it, you can die really quickly. Like these are super tightly regulated, uh, kind of physiological parameters in our body. So I, I know I'm kind of bouncing around a little bit, but that's kind of the genesis of this whole thing. You know, these guys showed me empirically, but basically, you know, do this and look at what happens. And so we got all fired up about sharing this information with people. And we came up with this, uh, keto aid formula where you would do, this much table salt and this much, uh, uh, potassium chloride and a little bit of magnesium citrate and put some lemon juice in it and some stevia and mix it up. And we had like a half million downloads of this thing and people loved it. But then we started getting tagged on social media where people were like, Hey, love the keto aid. But when I was going through TSA, they didn't like my three bags of white powder, you know, that I was traveling <laughs> with. Course. And so it just occurred to us, you know, was there's the, an opportunity to do kind of a convenient stick pack type type deal on this. And so we, we gave it a shot and, and got honest truth, the initial flavor, the, uh, citrus salt, we weren't really sure if, you know, this electrolyte angle would work, but we formulated it as a possible margarita base. And so if this thing tanked as an electrolyte company, we were going to pivot and sell it as like a, a drink mix. And now we just kind of do both like a knock genius on wood, marketer but, to your, yeah. Yeah. It, well, <laughs> I, I, I usually I'm like the worst one in the room with that stuff, but we, we really did identify a legit need. And then circling back around to the, um, the Gatorade, we had a, a friend of ours go to, uh, Florida state university, like the Gatorade, you know, museum and everything. And there was a, a, a display of the original Gatorade formulation, like that when they first started doing it, when you look on that thing, it's a gram of sodium per, per, uh, serving. Mm -hmm. And now it's, it's only about like 200 milligrams of sodium, if even that. So even as Gatorade has changed a lot over time, they've reduced the sodium and increased the sugar significantly. And I think that this is, is, uh, reflective of kind of the collective anxiety around sodium intake and ironically not around <laughs> the anxiety of like sugar intake and sugar can definitely play an ergogenic role under uh, certain circumstances. But for a lot of people, they just, they really don't need to add more sugar to their diet. Like they really should be like pairing that stuff out. But Gatorade really in the beginning was pretty smartly formulated. And if you go back even pre Gatorade, the old football coach thing was like, have some salt tablets, have a jug of water, do the salt tablets, sip on water up to, um, you know, satiety of, of your thirst mechanisms. And it, it, it was rare up until we, we, uh, were told to drink like eight, eight ounce glasses of water a day and, and to super hydrate in things like marathons and triathlons or what, what have you. There was a time when people didn't die from hyperhydration, from overhydrating themselves, diluting their electrolyte pool, and it either being hospitalized or or dying. And it, again, I know I'm kind of bouncing around there, but this was all the stuff that went into launching Element. There was a recognition that people really needed this stuff, and understanding that there's a real mis a, a lack of understanding around the true electrolyte needs that people have. That sodium is arguably kind of the the more important of the bunch, particularly when we're talking about a largely whole food, unprocessed diet. If somebody's eating Krispy Kremes and nachos, it's kind of a different story. Like we've got a whole other uh, set of circumstances there, but people go to any type of like a, a Mediterranean paleo low carb type diet and they pull the bulk of the processed foods out. They generally really benefit from ramping the sodium intake back up. Yeah, you know, it's it's such an interesting conversation because I have seen this in my clinical practice over and over again. I'm sure you have as well. People, especially you have someone going from a couch potato to sort of like this cross-fitting paleo person. And yeah. what ends up happening is obviously people like you and I would be like, this is a good move. They also, though, run into some problems because they're going from an extremely high sodium uh, sort of take where the body is actually insulin, you know, sort of the insulin is holding mm -hmm. onto that sodium to a very low, much lower sodium take where the insulin is, you know, the, uh, is releasing that sodium because there's not a lot of insulin around. Plus they're sweating like crazy. And then yep. you start seeing lots of weird things show up, sleep disturbances, sleep yep. becomes fragmented and difficult. You start seeing twitching, you start seeing fatigue, you start seeing things that you're like, well, why am I seeing these things? Uh, and then you start adding in something like 
sodium and electrolytes. And for me, it was initially trying to figure this out on my own before I found your products. Like, oh, we need some magnesium. Oh, you know, um, but sodium was always sort of last on my mind for whatever reason, partly because of what we, like you said, it slowly seeped in that, hey, we don't want too much sodium until you start digging into this and you essentially say, wait, that's sort of the major issue, which is why I got so excited about this. And actually, this will kind of dovetail into a discussion of metabolism. But one of the things that I've also seen, this goes into some of the stuff with uh, DNA and, you know, some Mm -hmm. of the researchers on, you know, sort of the palatability of food that perhaps, and I'm interested in your take on this, perhaps we have, um, our body is tasting things and and trying to associate particular micronutrients with them. And so what we've also done in the modern era is we have, um, you know, foods that can be savory without the amino acids or foods that Mm -hmm. can be very sweet without the glucose. And so we're kind of disconnecting this. And we also have tastes that sort of regulate back to our hunger center, sodium being one of the most important one of these. And so one of the things I have seen, and I'm wondering if you're seeing this as well, is that this is actually cutting down cravings as well in some people. I'm wondering, are you seeing that? And uh, what do you think the mechanism is there? Yeah, you know, it, it absolutely have seen that. And it's it's pretty interesting, uh, particularly folks that are doing uh, longer fast, but not even that, just like trying to avoid eating between meals. We noticed that if they're on point with their electrolytes, particularly sodium, and this is where some things like miso soup or, you know, like mm-hmm. even a bouillon or something like that can be really powerful in helping people to, to stick to a lower calorie intake. But if you do a little bit of poking around in PubMed, there's this uh, phenomenon called sodium appetite, which is basically this neuroregulation of appetite that seems to drive a humans and other organisms towards the consumption of sodium. And in kind of a free living environment, usually that sodium is associated with kind of protein rich, nutrient dense foods. And, you know, you can taste B vitamins. Like if you have a powder of B vitamins, it'll have a taste to it. If you eat some, you know, magnesium citrate, it will have a taste to it. But, but it, the only nutrient that we really, of that kind of micronutrient class that we have a specific taste receptor for is sodium. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's kind of interesting. So um, it's a, it kind of dovetails a little bit into the protein leverage hypothesis and the optimum foraging strategy. And protein leverage hypothesis suggests that organisms eat to a protein minimum. And it, in nature, most protein-rich foods, whether you're talking about clover for a grazing animal or like meat or fish for an omnivore or a carnivore, Protein-rich foods tend to be very, very nutritionally dense. You tend to get a lot of nutrition along the way uh, with the food that you eat. And so if you eat to a protein minimum, the body kind of has this idea that so long as we hit these protein minimums, we're good. We, we get all the vitamins, minerals, antioxidants that we generally need. And that seems to be pretty true. And if we really look at, at some of the work that like Matt Lalonde or Marty Kendall have done in the... Uh, the nutrient density space, like a kind of a protein centric, uh, minimally processed diet, whether it's higher carb or lower carb tends to be very, very nutrient dense, provides a lot of nutrition relative to the calories. And again, whether we're on that higher carb side of things or lower carb side of things, what we've seen clinically is if folks aren't eating enough protein, they will inevitably tend to overeat either excess carbs or excess fat. And this is where I've seen these horror stories of people in the ketogenic diet space where they're terrified of protein, they're scared of mTOR and IGF-1, and they're eating 30 grams of protein a day and eating sticks of butter. And by God, they're gaining, they're gaining weight on it. You know, they're, they're gaining weight on a diet that's supposed to be impossible to gain weight on it. And, and uh, it, it's kind of crazy. And it, it takes a lot of work to get people kind of drugged back to that kind of protein centric model. But, uh, once we get people there, just magic happens. And so, you know, it, it's interesting how I think when you start understanding something better, like your messaging simplifies and whatnot. And I'm at this point now where I'm like, Hey, just hit this protein minimum. Let's start there. Yep. And if you hit that, it, it, now let's figure out if you run a little bit better on carbs or a little bit better on fat, or maybe a little bit of a combination And then maybe the last thing that we look at, maybe there's some immunogenic foods that we need to be aware of. Maybe you don't do well with gluten or maybe dairy or, you know, maybe some other stuff. 
and uh, it 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 it's so much less um, overwhelming, I think, for people because it's kind of like, okay, yeah, I'll just make sure that breakfast, lunch, dinner, I get this this you know palm and a half size whack of protein, and we do that, and then we can just kind of peel the onion instead of throwing all of paleo ancestral health at people right out of the gate, you know, um, all of those things are cool. All of them can be valuable and virtually no one needs all of that, like right out of the gate. So that, uh, yeah, yeah. But, but it, it does definitely circle back into the, the sodium, um, appetite, uh, a neuroregulation of appetite control mechanisms for sure. Yeah. I love that. It's funny. I just did a interview with Herman Ponzer out of Duke. I don't know if you know, his. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. he's the one that works on the whole idea of constrained energy metabolism. Yeah. Yep. And he does, has done a lot with the Hadza Chimani tribes and, and other other tribes. But he talks a lot about, um, you know, sort of this idea that, you know, half of their diet, at least, and they're eating plenty of carbohydrates, but they're also really eating a pretty high uh, protein diet. I, yep. like you, for a very long time have, have been saying, if you're going to count something, uh, count, count protein. protein. And yep. I've also seen with that, that um, one of the things with ketogenic diets as well, this is just, you know, sort of an aside, because I think people will be interested in it. One of the things I've seen with lots of people who have been successful on ketogenic diets is that they tend to avoid the sort of processed ketogenic foods that have different flavors in it, like stevia Mm -hmm. and things like this that can hijack sort of these appetite centers. But one of the things that I've always sort of done with ketogenic diets is looked essentially at two different things, protein first, kind of bringing that back up if it's too low, because we know you typically keep moderate protein. It's not typically a high protein diet. People can get kicked right out of ketosis for that, but some people need that. And then Mm -hmm. sodium, and then reducing some of these highly palatable sort of non-nutritive things, even in the natural world, like xylitol or erythritol or or stevia being a high force natural sort of sweetener. And so it's a really interesting sort of conversation to be having. And I I, um, am certainly in that place where I'm like, yes, prioritizing protein. And then perhaps number two, prioritizing sodium, as you said, they tend to come um, together sort of in the diet. And maybe we can make a difference with cravings and hunger and things like that. And obviously, if you're going to be able to get your results from a diet, you need to be able to stay on that particular diet. This makes us dovetail though into a whole other thing that you're also expert at and sort of helping people understand, which goes into sort of regenerative agriculture and this kind of idea, right? So if we're talking about protein now, many people would essentially say, and there's a whole conversation going on here, can we sustain the planet if we all move to a protein sort of based diet? And so there's this whole thing that starts to happen now. It's like, well, are we going to be moving towards cellular agriculture? Are we mm-hmm. going to be moving more towards, you know, sustainable agriculture? Obviously, our, our uh, you know, sort of uh, soils are becoming depleted. And that is a serious, serious issue. I'm wondering if you have anything to sort of say on this, because I think one of the first things that comes to mind for people who are sort of wanting to take care of themselves which and and take care of the planet and other humans, which I would describe as a next level human, right. these things sort of uh, sort of come up. So they're just like, okay, well, what am I doing for my own personal health? What can I do and how can I eat for um, the health of the planet and to sustain this? So I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that. Obviously, you co-wrote a, a recent book called Sacred Cow with um, Diana Rogers, who I who I've had a pleasure of speaking with as well. Give us a little bit of your take on this. I think you're the perfect person to help us walk through some of these difficult conversations. Oh man, I um I really wish it was somebody other than me because it is <laughs> such a uh I, I did my first public talk around the potential of regenerative uh food systems, you know, being kind of grass centric in mm-hmm. 2006. Mm-hmm. And there was kind of a it was organized be at, at the California State University, Chico, and it was uh, this food co-op that had some, they were going to start adding meat to their offerings. And there was some real pushback within the co-op members. And so there was, it it was honestly kind of theater, like the co-op had already decided they were going to do this, but they were kind of providing this public forum for people to thrash and flail and look like they were going to do something, but they'd already made the decision. But we had a group of people that uh, like uh, uh, Cindy Daly and some other folks that are in the the department of agriculture there. 
And I, I was invited to speak on this. And uh, then we had some, you know, kind of largely vegan centric folks that were talking about some of the challenges as they saw it. And this, this story has been three parts and it's uh, the health concerns of animal products in our, our food systems, the environmental concerns, and then the ethical concerns. Mm. And Every interaction that I've had historically, like the the health concern is something that we get hit with every day. Like every every couple of weeks, there's there's a new study that says eating one egg a day increases your risk as much as a pack a day smoking habit and mm -hmm. stuff like this. And it looks very scary. And it, it comes from Tufts or Harvard or, you know, some august uh, uh, institution. But you, you need a little bit of a scientific background to get in and, and parse this stuff out. And then when you start digging into it, you're like, oh, this is really garbage research. They're taking a lot of stuff out of context. Uh, the, the foundations of these, these um, papers are asking people to recall what they've eaten sometimes as much as 12 years in the past. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I mean, it's just kind of garbage research, but it's a lot to unpack that. And then you have the ethical consideration, which is, um, you know, is it ethically okay for a human being to take the life of another organism to eat it? You know, and particularly people will say, well, we can raise all these grains. We can do all this stuff. We could, we could grow meat in a lab, you know, so where, where do the ethics lie on this? But it gets kind of interesting when you, un when you start scratching around on the human nutrition side and you look at early life and late life uh, parameters of a low animal protein intake diet, it's virtually impossible to grow a human child, you know, from in utero and then grow them up to adulthood and do that in a way that they don't suffer pretty significant nutrient deficiencies without some sort of animal product input. Like uh, uh, you, it, it's not super common, but occasionally you see these examples of a, a vegan parents feeding their kids a vegan diet and the child ends up very sick or, or dying, you know, even the breast milk of the mother being so nutrient deficient that it, it, you know, it can't support the child's life. So the ethical story starts taking on some interesting characteristics. When you, you look at like early life considerations, it's like, can you grow a human being without animal products? And people will push back and say, well, you can use these supplements and do this and do that. And it, Maybe you can, maybe you can't. It's not entirely clear if you can. And that's going to be a really big lift in marginalized populations. You know, uh, uh, developing countries, poorer folks, like are, they don't have uh, the ability to go into a Walgreens around the corner and get uh, DHA extracted from algae and, uh, you know, a bio, highly bioavailable, low gut irritating iron source, you know, and on and on and on. And then you kind of circle around to the environmental side, which is, I think, a lot of where we're getting the main messaging now. You know, we're told that animal husbandry is contributing. Some of the numbers kicked around it that it contributes as much as 78% of greenhouse gas emissions, mm -hmm. which is, you know, really scary at face value. And then you discover that that 78% is completely inaccurate and that the real number was closer to 3%. But once these things are said, it's kind of like peeing in a pool. It's just out in the internet. And like the that 78% number has been picked up by uh, news organizations, social media, even some scientific papers have, have misattributed this, this number. So it's a massive, gnarly problem to unpack. And suggesting that there's anything that we need to discuss around this further I don't know if anybody's noticed, but there's this thing called cancel culture going around where if you pop your head up and say something that isn't of the orthodoxy and the orthodoxy can kind of change day to day, although there's, there's kind of some, some, you know, definitely some, uh, some lane lines there, but suggesting that animal husbandry one may not be remotely the contributor to greenhouse gases that it's portrayed and that too, the fact it's part of a biogenic process, that it's part of life, that it doesn't really matter in this climate change discussion. Like it, it, you are facing deplatforming, um, any business stuff you're associated with getting attacked. And so it's um 
we did this book and this this film. We we started it in earnest about five years ago, and then it it uh, the book released um, right at the height of COVID, kind of June of 2020. And I'm I'm glad we did it on the one hand, and then I've been terrified that we did it on the other because I'm not really sure what type of uh, you know bullseye it's it's painted on my back and you know my family and all the rest of that stuff but i i was listening to the dark horse podcast uh, the, this morning and that has brett and heather weinstein they're both evolutionary biologists it's one i think one of the most important um podcasts that that are available right now and it was interesting they weren't talking about this specifically and i don't want to mischaracterize or take what they said out of context but they were talking about a news article that that was saying that the Amazon rainforest was actually contributing to climate change. Mm-hmm. This was the headline. And they were like, what the hell is, is this thing talking about? And when you dug into it, what they were, what was revealed was that it was deforestation of the, the Amazon rainforest that was contributing to climate change because you're burning all this biomass. And so this carbon is getting you know, released into the atmosphere. This is a concerning feature, but they went on to mention this thing, which I've I've struggled. It, it, it's funny, kids really understand this at kind of an intuitive level, and adults really <laughs> have struggled with it, or maybe I'm poor at articulating it or what have you. But if you think about just a plant, like we don't even need to think about the Amazon rainforest, but a plant goes through this process of photosynthesis where it pulls carbon dioxide out of the air. And it uses the energy from the sun to link carbon molecules together. And it creates carbohydrates and lipids and proteins and and all kinds of different stuff. And if that gets eaten, it will release greenhouse gases. Because if we eat some carbohydrate, we will pull it into our body. And then when we do some exercise of general metabolism, the carbohydrate gets broken down into uh, uh, carbon dioxide and water. And it gets released back into the environment. If we take that stuff and stick it in the rumen of a, a an animal like a cow, it will release greenhouse gases. It could be methane, it could be carbon dioxide, but it's that same process. But the or, or if this stuff gets cut up and put into a compost pile, it will release greenhouse gases. Ultimately, mm-hmm. the carbon dioxide will ultimately either become part of the soil, which is actually kind of cool. It's some carbon sequestration uh, opportunity there, or it'll get released into the atmosphere. But these biogenic sources of carbon are a cycle. And this is something that really escapes people. So long as life is going on, it will be a greenhouse gas emitter. But it is also a greenhouse gas sequesterer. And this is the thing that really gets lost in this whole massive story. And where it has gotten really dangerous, like a good six years ago, there was a, a piece that appeared in um, uh, physics.org, a, a website kind of devoted to physics and engineering and whatnot, and was talking about how it, it's been recently discovered that shellfish, different different types of shellfish in the ocean floor, produce absolutely prodigious amounts of methane. And there was a suggestion that maybe we should eradicate shellfish to reduce the methane production. Mm. And then there was a similar article that was talking about termites produce huge amounts of methane. Maybe we should get rid of termites. And then there was even a piece that was talking about the Green Party in Sweden, that they were putting forward some legislation that we sh- that they should eradicate or dramatically reduce the moose population in Sweden, because the moose eat lichen and produce greenhouse gases via you know cellulosic fermentation. And this is insanity. What people yeah, no are kidding. suggesting is eradicating life on Earth to protect life on Earth. And this, this distinction between biogenic sources of greenhouse gases and the fact that this is part of a, a, a dynamic equilibrium, like in some situations, more carbon will get sequestered into the soil, like in the... Uh, Chihuahuan Desert of Mexico. There's a rancher and uh, several ranchers down there now that we highlighted in our, our Sacred Cow film. He's reversed over a million acres of desertified area and converted it into grasslands. Mm. This grassland is now a major greenhouse gas emitter. It releases carbon dioxide. It releases methane. 
but it sequesters more than it releases. But it is a, 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 a releaser. But it's reversing, uh, it's converting land that is not usable for anything as far as food production. And it, it's reversing that. And desert, desertification is one of the most challenging things that we face because if our farmland all desertifies, we're not growing anything. And this is kind of the inevitable process that goes forward in these areas. And ironically, one of the only tools that we appear to have to mitigate this process is some amount of animal interaction and typically grazing animals. Chickens don't work. Pork doesn't really work, but grazing animals, moose, bison, cows, deer, kangaroos, like all of these things can really play a remarkable role in mitigating this other piece of climate change, which is desertification. So, um, I don't know if I answered that question, but it, it, oh, I you know, love it, man. Yeah, I think I think you did. I love it. And here's the interesting thing: what comes to mind, right, is is like we hear hear a lot of people talking about ecosystems, and we've destroyed the ecosystems, and. And in a sense, yes, we have. But what you're talking about is we also have the opportunity with this greater understanding of rebuilding ecosystems. And it may be our only way of doing this. We certainly can't take a mechanistic approach and sort of just say we have to wipe out certain things without understanding. It's just like to me cutting out, you know, one of your organs or something and not really understanding what it is. Like before, you know, it's like, oh, we don't need the spleen. Let's take it out. Then you find out, oh, the spleen's doing a lot of good it's stuff. It's pretty for important. You. Yeah. <laughs> it's you pretty would important. like to keep that. Yeah. yeah. Let's get rid of the appendix. Then we find out, oh, the appendix is, you know, something that's super important for your immune system, things like that. I do think you articulated that incredibly well, because one of the things I think, and again, this is what I appreciate about your mind in general, what we need people is to look at things in a holistic way and to realize and say, wait a second here, let's let's understand this a little better. And let's also understand we don't necessarily live in that sort of old world. And so we are going to have to, as humans, sort of duplicate some of these systems that may not be working uh, in their natural form uh, as they once what once were. I've learned a lot about this from uh, you and Diana and, and you know, sort of soil regeneration. For me, I was more on the cellular agriculture sort of bandwagon. Mm-hmm. I still mm-hmm. am. I For me, I'm, I'm sort of like, it's probably going to be a little bit of both to feed the population, but now I'm leaning more towards, due, due to this education, this idea of regenerative agriculture. I think it's very important. I do think people who listen to this podcast, who are people like you and I, they're basically people who are very concerned with their own health and also concerned about being good humans and, you know, for others and for the environment. It's a hugely important uh, piece here. Now, I know I have, you have limited time here, so I want to basically go through one more question that I always like to ask. When I have someone of your sort of breadth of knowledge here, one of the questions that I want is just to ask you, what are you sort of, where are you in the place? You know, I'm sure you're like this. I'm like this. I'm always like, this is the thing I'm researching. This is the thing I'm most excited about. This is the thing, the new insight I have come to understand that I would like to pass on. And it sort of goes through cycles with creators and intellectuals, mm-hmm. right? It's like, you know, you're sort of working on a particular project. Where are you now? And what is the thing that you're just like, Jade, here's one thing that, you know, sort of, I, I am really concerned about or um, wanting p- to know about or my next piece of work or my my new current insight. Um, let us know if there's anything like that for you right now that we want to be keeping an eye on. Oh, cool. Cool. That's a great question. Um, definitely still beating the drum on this uh, regenerative ag scene. I'm trying to do it in a way that I don't get canceled. I, I am trying to keep relevant in here. And I, I try to... Uh, one thing I've learned is... Um, Couching things as a question is much more safe than than making an, an, an even modestly emphatic statement. So asking lots of questions has kind of um, deflected, I think, some of the vitriol around that. Uh, at the beginning of 2020, I had a talk that was titled and, and is titled Longevity, Are We Trying Too Hard? And so within it you know spans from the vegan scene to the the fasting and low carb scene this sense that um protein intake is really injurious that it's going to shorten your lifespan that it it upregulates mTOR uh insulin like growth factors and it's going to give everybody cancer and everybody neurodegenerative disease and we're all going to die well there's a news flash we're all going to die like that nobody's getting out alive and i think that this is actually some of the problem on on the vegan side of this is a a complete disconnect from the the reality of life and death within our our existence but that's kind of a 
a totally separate topic for another day, but I, I see people doing things in an effort to, in, I think, their mind, minimize the risk of cancer, minimize the risk of neurodegenerative disease. And I see them making kind of a Faustian bargain in which they are taking a potentiality and trading up their risk profile for something that is a known problem. Now, all of us have some sort of a, a genetic and epigenetic risk profile associated with cardiovascular disease, neurodegenerative disease, uh, various types of cancer and whatnot. None of it is one for, for virtually any of us. You know, uh, some people have some very high risk profiles for certain things, um, but it, it's some fractional part of one with all this stuff. Uh, but with a process called sarcopenia, the, the age-related loss of muscle mass, it is a guarantee. Um, once you get past 30, if you're not strength training, there is a very predictable, you know, decline in muscle mass, in power production, and the loss of uh, fast twitch motor units. And what's interesting is that when you really look at effective aging, it, it is those people who maintain the metabolic health, the metabolic flexibility, the dietary practices, and the movement practices that forestall the sarcopenic process, the loss of muscle mass, the loss of these uh, fast twitch motor units, they age really, really well. They don't live forever. They, they, they die eventually, but it, it's crystal clear that people who strength train, eat adequate protein, they can have in their 90s the, physical, the physicality of somebody who is relatively sedentary in their 50s. So it's like getting a doubling of your effective health span. And so this is something that I, I've been beating some, some drums around because I see people doing uh, super long fasting, very low protein diets. And, uh, uh, you know, my crowd is more kind of the low carb ketogenic kind of, kind of scene. And I, I don't want this to come off as disparaging, but I, I see people in that scene. And when I see them, their sense of vigor and physicality, I can't tell if they are like a raw vegan. Like they look nutrient deficient. They've got dark circles under their eyes. They look like if their car slid off of an icy road, that they would not be strong enough to haul themselves back up a, a, a snowy cold embankment and like mm -hmm. uh, hike themselves to safety. Like they are not resilient individuals. And so I've really been beating this drum that um, I think that the bulk of the literature around calorie restriction, fasting, and all of the claims that suggest that it's going to be this like longevity boon are largely due to the fact that when you look at the circumstances that these uh, uh, calorie restricted diets are introduced in animals, it's mainly just protecting the animals from a really poor lab-based diet. And it's doing absolutely nothing more than that. And if we understand anything, we know that eating less bad food is better than eating more bad food. Yeah. And, and uh, even on that mTOR side, um, chronically overeating, chronically overeating protein, having chronically elevated insulin levels. Yes, that's a problem without a doubt. But eating two or three meals a day, punctuated activation of mTOR and IGF-1, doing some resistance training, doing a little bit of sprint interval training, you know, turning things on and off. Uh, people have kind of taken this aging story and reduced it to an on-off switch. And they've sided with the notion that it's better to have all of this stuff turned off entirely versus turned on. You think about the piano keys on a standard piano, and I think it's 88 keys. And there's literally an infinite amount of music that one could create with, with 88 keys and the various timing combinations. And nobody would say that music would be better if everything was just turned all on or all off. And then you think about the human genome, and we have about 23,000 genes. And people are suggesting that we should be in this mode where it's just all on or all off. And it's just absolutely ridiculous. So I've really been beating some drums around this notion that we want intermittency. We want, you don't want to overeat all the time, but you also don't want to undereat all the time. Like there, there's a case for some feast and some case for some famine. And uh, there's definitely a strong case to be made that most people, if they are, are debating, should I add a... Uh, you know, I'm doing one 48-hour fast a month right now. Should I bump that up to 72 hours? 
I would ask, are you doing three or four days of strength training per week already? And if you're not, I would side on the add an additional day of strength training per week versus adding an additional day of fasting per month. Because it, And then also get out in the sun as much as you can without you know getting burned, have uh, meaningful social interactions. Um, uh, you know, do do those other things that we know are really uh, well correlated with a, a a good health span because those things are really known. Like we understand that a solid strength training program, adequate protein intake, all of that feeds into a, a guaranteed better return on investment from the perspective of of like a health span. It doesn't mean that you won't get cancer, but we also know that people who get cancer, who strength train, who eat healthfully beat cancer better, you know, and there is absolutely no guarantee that starving yourself and and being sarcopenic at a too young age is going to prevent cancer. That is entirely speculative. So um, I that's been the stuff that I've been noodling on and kind of beating the drum. And there are some really smart people that are more on that protein restriction side, the calorie restriction, the, the uh, fasting side of this thing. People are very, much smarter than I am, mm. but I really think that they have, um, I could be wrong. So as one, one sideline, I could be completely full of shit and that mm. what they're recommending is actually the, the way to a uh, healthier, happier, you know, better, longer life. But it's also possible. I think those people have gotten too far out in the mechanistic weeds and they need to take a step back and look at the, again, this kind of more holistic p- picture, you know, some strength training, some sun, some community, some novel activity, um, appropriate protein intake. I, I, everything that I understand about effective aging and kind of health in general is supported by doing that. And I see people get into sketchy areas with too much of the fasting, too much of the protein restriction and whatnot. Yeah. I'm so on board with you. And one of the things I hope everyone listening to Rob speak is that one of the things I've always seen about you being engaged with your work is you, you are not a biased individual. I mean, you're human, so you're biased. You know, we are all biased, but in a sense, you always seem to check your bias. And I do think this is an agnostic sort of scientific mind. I try to do the same. Part of what I see with uh, too many people is they will let their opinions become, you know, sort of their identity. And I think that's what happens. They start heading in sort of a different direction. And you're right, could be wrong, you know, but the bottom line is, is that just the fact that you're saying that and the way that you're sort of articulating this in a very holistic, unbiased way, um, I think is the way we all should be thinking. That way we are better able to correct ourselves when the correction comes, because we're all going to find plenty of things to be wrong about. I mean, we've seen this with the whole COVID sort of thing, yeah. you know, it's just gone off the rails in so many different directions. And it's the people who have been the most sort of balanced and checking their biases that I've been most impressed by. And um, certainly that's been the case with you for me following you throughout your career. So I know you have, uh, you know, a busy day, my friend. I I am uh, incredibly grateful to have your mind. Where do people uh, find you? Where are you spending most of your time? I know you do a ton on social media, YouTube, but where, where would you suggest they really go to find most of your work? Uh, I'm doing a lot of uh, writing for Element, so drinkelement.com, and then our, our blog there. I'm trying to produce a lot of material there. And then probably uh, my uh, the podcast I do with my wife, the Healthy Rebellion podcast. Just Such check a good that podcast. out. Oh, yeah. thank you. We have a yeah. ton of fun doing it. It's uh, it's really a ton of fun. And, and those are kind of the main places that I'm hanging out these days. Yeah. Rob, thank you so much for your work, man. I mean, honestly, the industry is so much better to have you, brother. So appreciative of you. So keep it up and hopefully we'll, uh, me and you will be able to connect in person sometime soon, my friend. Awesome. NorCal margaritas are on me when we do it. (laughs) I got you. Same, man. Same when you come to Asheville, brother. Awesome. Be well, my friend. 